Our first scripture reading this morning comes to us from the book of Micah, chapter 6, verses 6 to 8. Let's listen together for a word from God. With what shall I come before the Lord and bow myself before God on high? Shall I come before God with burnt offerings, with calves a year old? Will the Lord be pleased with a thousand rams or tens of thousands of rivers of oil? Shall I give my firstborn for my transgressions, the fruit of my body for the sin of my soul? He has told you, O mortal, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you but to do justice and to love kindness and to walk humbly with your God? The word of God. Our second scripture reading comes from the book of Matthew, the 28th book, verses 16 to 20. Let's listen again for what God is saying to the church. Now the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. When they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. And Jesus came to them and said to them, All authority... In heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. And remember, I am with you always to the end of the age. The word of the Lord. Will you pray with me? God, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. So it's the start of Pride Month, and I thought I might kick things off with a a short reflection from one of my favorite gay poets, Walt Whitman, who writes, This is what you shall do. Love the earth and sun and animals. Despise riches. Give alms to everyone who asks. Stand up for the stupid and the crazy. Devote your income and labor to others. Hate tyrants. Argue not concerning God. Have patience and indulgence towards people. Take off your hat to nothing known or unknown, or to any man or number of men. Go freely with powerful and uneducated persons, and with the young and with the mothers of families. Read these leaves in the open air every season of every year of your life. Re-examine all you have been told, in school or church or in any book. Dismiss whatever insults your own soul and your very flesh shall be a great poem, and shall have the richest fluency, not only in its words, but in the silent lines of its lips and face, between the lashes of your eyes, and in every motion and joint of your body. I love this poem. I genuinely thought about getting, at some point ambitiously, like the entire thing wrapped around me as a full-body tattoo seems like a lot. We're maybe going to narrow it a little bit. 
Um, but, but what's most important to me when I discovered this text was the sentiment, re-examine all you have been told at school or church or in books, and dismiss whatever insults your own soul. Some of you may know that I am an ex-evangelical, uh, so re-examination has been a really critical part of evaluating the faith that I had when I was young and the faith that I am building now. Which is not to say that I always want to do it. I was looking through the lectionary today, and when I got to Matthew 28, 16 to 20, which is sometimes known as the Great Commission, I didn't really want to. Um, I've got big history with this text. Um, it's a text that often gets used when churches send people on missions trips. Uh, if you grew up in a church like mine, that was usually a predominantly white group of people going to a predominantly brown country or part of the city and proclaiming the gospel as we understood it, which usually meant telling your story and then hoping that people who you knew nothing about, who you had no context for, but who clearly desperately needed your help we're going to be converted to Jesus. So when I come across this text in the lectionary, my impulse is to pick a different one. I don't have to follow the lectionary. I can do whatever I want. No one's, there's not like a lectionary police making sure that I preach a certain thing on a certain Sunday. Part of my commitment to my faith is about re-examining, just how we get to me asking the question, what is so great about the Great Commission? What is so great about this text that in my lived experience has so often been used as an excuse for violence, as an excuse for imperialism, as an excuse for colonial expansion of the church? So I spent some time with it. I listened to what some other people had to say about it. Uh, and I'm sharing it with you because I think it's easy to cut out parts of the Bible that make us uncomfortable. And I don't think I have the full answer to this, and I think that might be important to say from the pulpit, too. I want to think with you about this. So upon my re-examination of this text, what I've found are these two things of note, and one is about how I think the text tells us that Jesus relates to us, and then within that framework, what it means about how we relate to each other. So how Jesus relates to us. The context here for Matthew, generally speaking in Matthew 28, is the resurrection has just happened. He's been crucified, he's been tried, he's been crucified, he's been resurrected, and most people haven't seen him. The women who went to the tomb have seen him, but they're kind of it. They go back, they tell people, and Jesus appears to them on the road and says, tell all of my disciples to go to Galilee. So all of these people who have just lost their friend, 
their teacher, who are scared, who abandoned him. Many of them ran away at the first sign of trouble, who are reeling in the aftermath of Judas betraying him. It's not just that you lost Jesus, it's that you had this guy who you've been traveling with for the last three years you thought you knew, and all of a sudden, bam, something totally different. Like, it's not a good scene. And yet, here are these people in the midst of trauma, despair, fear, loss, experiencing an utter lack of control, and honestly, a a loss of future hope. You thought you knew what was coming, and suddenly you don't who show up to this mountain, hoping against hope. It feels like the most relatable thing in this text, maybe, is that some of them, when they saw Jesus worshipped, and some of them doubted. How could you not? How could somebody not? Really? Really, though? Did this... Surely this is a trick. It's a very human response to an absolutely bananas thing. To have happened. And in response to both that reverence and to the doubters, Jesus' first assertion is to say that all authority on heaven and on earth have been given to him. This is not just like a random thing he's saying, it's actually referencing something that would have been very familiar to this group of people. Uh, in the book of Daniel, in the Hebrew Bible, there is uh, chapter 7, which is sometimes called the Apocalypse of Daniel, which is like a, not apocalypse as an end, world ending, but apocalypse in terms of uh, something being revealed. And in that section, Daniel writes, As I watched in the night visions, I saw one like a human being coming with the clouds of heaven, and he came to the Ancient One and presented before him To him was given dominion and glory and kingship, that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion that shall not pass away, and his kingship is one that shall never be destroyed. So for Jesus to show up and reference Daniel in this heavenly son of man idea with an assertion that this son of man rules over all earthly authority is meant to be for these people experiencing trauma and despair and discord, an act of hope, a reassurance, hope that the things that they are experiencing, the trauma, the fear, the loss, what has been enacted on them and on their communities by the authorities of the world are in fact not the highest authority. They are not the final intention of the Creator for their lives. And by doing so, by starting there, by meeting them where they are, Christ takes into himself all those things which we think define us and recontextualize them. He doesn't deny their impact, but he does assert that the power is limited. And once he's reframed that, he goes on to give them this new vision of the future, this way of being in, this new way of being in light of the reframing. And he doesn't just give it, I think it's important to know, to the ones who worship him. He gives it to all of them. 
commission isn't just like, oh, you, you the, you the ones who got it. Here, here's your task. It's for all of them, which suggests that there is, in, in fact, an important place for doubt in a life of faith. Doubt doesn't discount you from being engaged with God. God has room in God's self for doubt. Everyone is included. And in that small act of inclusion, I think, Jesus also lays a groundwork for the future to come. Go out and include others as you have been included. Go out and paint a vision of the future that exists beyond the violence and injustice and oppression that people experience all over the world. That is an incredibly daunting task. Because, remember, we're not talking about a group of powerful people. Politically well-connected, savvy, rich. We're talking about 11 people who are working-class, middle-class folks living under occupation of an empire that has little regard for their life. So, the idea that Jesus would say, go out and say to everyone, tell the entire world, that's not easy. That might be daunting. They're not going to get podcast invitations or op-eds or get a bully pulpit. They don't have public standing or influence or authority. What they have is Jesus and his teaching. That word obey, teach them to obey my teachings, is maybe better translated as keep in the way that we keep the Sabbath, or in the way that we keep the laws, to revere them, to use them to shape our lives. Jesus ends his address to them, and actually the entire book of Matthew ends with this promise. I am with you always, to the end of the age. And unlike in other books where Jesus ascends up, Jesus doesn't ascend up here, Jesus hangs out. He promises that they will not be left alone again to do this difficult, daunting work. So Jesus meets us in the middle of our fear, trauma, discord, and doubt. He reminds us, he assures us that these things do not fully define our realities. He redirects us towards a model of being and a promise for the future. He sets us on a path, and then he stays with us while we walk it. And if all that is true, then it begs the question, what does this mean for how we relate to others? Well, firstly, it means that this is not an us versus them situation. If all authority on heaven and earth has been given to Jesus, and there is no us and them, it's not a hierarchy of knowledge, this isn't a call to go out and be the savior, or share because you feel charitable or bad. This is about solidarity. It means that Jesus has given us a place to begin for that work. Places to look, seeking out places of trauma 
of discord, of division, of fear. We don't have to leave our neighborhoods, our listservs in some cases, to find those places. And then it gives us a matrix for what we value and how we move through the world. The word that Jesus uses for authority, all authority on heaven and earth has been given to me, whenever that word gets used specifically in Matthew around Jesus, it's in moments where he is healing and in moments where he's forgiving. And it's usually contrasted by some political or religious authority that doesn't understand why he's doing what he's doing, that doesn't believe he should have said authority. So when we look at the Great Commission then, I think where we come to, where we might come to, is that the work we're sent out to do in the world is not, in fact, the work of uh, unilateral salvation that has been rubber-stamped by our holy book. We are instead invited into the things that Jesus has commanded to do justice, We are invited to love kindness. We are invited to live our lives in ways that walk humbly. And that we go into the places of trauma and hurt and discord, perhaps in our own lives, with a posture and an interest towards justice. Because that is the authority of the crucified Christ. It's not a top-down, I told you so, It's a grassroots, how are we in this together? It's a solidarity. Because that's where we start from. And that is what I have found in my re-examination. I would be super curious to know what y'all find in yours. Please tell me. That's not just me being glib at the pulpit, like you sit with this for two weeks and think about it and have a different thought, I absolutely want to know. Because preaching, going out into the world to make disciples of all nations, baptizing them, teaching them, also isn't a thing we do alone. Not one person didn't get told to do this. Eleven people got told to do this. Eleven limited, scared, not particularly powerful people got given this vision of a world of justice, of kindness, and of love, and told to go out and model that because it would transform everything. That is what I believe we are charged to do in this text. May it be so.